I want to start every single episode with a, a quote from a Lubitsch film. And for this one, I want us both at the same time, give our interpretations of the line. Now that impresses me. <laughs> Three, two, one. Now, now that, that impresses, impresses me. me. This is How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. Well, it's our season finale, and what a season it's been. We'll be back in March after a small hiatus, so mark your calendar apps. If you'd like to help us make this show more visible for others, rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use, but especially if it's Apple Podcasts. Anyways, on to the show. It's June 1919. And Brom Reuter joins us today to discuss The Oyster Princess. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. I'm going to do a level test. Ha ha ha! Ha ha ha! Is that good? That peaked a little. Yeah, that that is one of my favorite closing lines of any. It is uh, so good. It is so good. And it is so weird. It is. (laughs) For the dad to see your daughter get laid and just be like, well, that impresses me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And uh, we we can get into that. But I'm going to I'm going to introduce you so we can actually uh, use it. All right. Hello. Welcome to the season finale of season one of How Would Lubitsch Do It? And we are here with my friend Brom Reuter who has been on a guest on our previous podcast, Film Formally. Brom, explain yourself. Who are you? I am a filmmaker of mostly non-narrative experimental films, but I have a big love for, uh, as of late, more and more old Hollywood stuff, which this is not part of, because this is still the Berlin phase of Lubitsch, I think. <laughs> you think? I've done my research. Hopefully there was some way of knowing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm from the Netherlands, so that's why it's a... It's a it's, I'm, I'm somewhere else. Well, I think you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're the third person to come on the podcast so far that is um, beaming in from Europe. Ah, I, I feel like I open every episode like this, but it's just reiterating that we're doing the 100-year-old films of a director who's been dead for 75 years. So, Brom, tell us about uh, your relationship to Ernst and why should we care about this director who I must mention has been dead for 75 years. According to my, uh, uh, what is it, uh, my, my What I Watch account that I had for many, many years, since 2005, I think. Uh, I came into him in 2008 in, I think, June? Yeah, June 3rd. It was Trouble in Paradise. And I think that's a really good start. And then I had the alternative route into film, into like old Hollywood film through some friends of mine who gave me like Douglas Sirk DVDs and we would exchange Lubitsch DVDs. And I had a friend who was really deep into Lubitsch. And I think at that time, the Criterion collection of early Lubitsch came out or earlier Lubitsch, because now we're watching really early Lubitsch. But like that was with all his pre-code movies, right? Yeah, I think so. In that were definitely The Smiling Lieutenant, Monte Carlo, and One Hour With You, which I saw in quick succession, and The Marriage Circle, which I watched right after Trouble in Paradise. The Marriage Circle was actually probably one of the first silent movies I've ever seen, and I just fell head over heels. The rest of them I watched in, when I was like 21, I want to say. Uh, that was The Smiling Lieutenant, Monte Carlo, One Hour With You, and eventually To Be or Not To Be, and somehow that did not end up with me watching the rest because it should have 
because I do consider to be or not to be one of the greatest films I've ever seen together with Trouble in Paradise. Uh, when you asked me or when I sorry, when I forced myself upon this podcast, <laughs> uh, I actually had this panic of like, oh, shit, I haven't seen any Lubitsch in you know, more than 10 years. So I got to start over. So I feel kind of like a student again, a, a, a Lubitsch student again. So I watched three movies in preparation for this just to give a little clarification because I'm probably going to refer to the other two as well. Uh, of course, today we're talking about The Oyster Princess, but I've also watched I Don't Want to Be a Man or Ich möchte kein Mann sein. And I watched uh, Die Puppe or The Doll. Like I kind of had this idea of like watching one before his big change because apparently this is like a big aesthetic change for him which i can see oyster princess uh, you've seen kind of the three big aussie films uh, aussie oswalda also a new name for me what a delightful person she's one of the probably two most prominent actors that we're seeing from lubich in this period along mm-hmm. with Paula negri although there's been a fair amount of emily hannings oh my gosh mm. and uh, harriet leadkey has also shown up quite a bit but yeah no she's incredible in this i i do love that she always plays characters named Aussie. <laughs> uh, right? Isn't that like the weirdest thing? Because like, just imagine, so Robert Downey Jr. shows up in Iron Man playing a character named Robert Downey Jr. Just look at her IMDb. In Aussie's Diary, she plays Aussie. Toboggan Cavalier, she's Aussie Hahnemann. Oh, she does get a different uh, different uh, last name sometimes. I mean, this film, what a way to go out in season one. I mean, mm. I hadn't seen this film in a couple of years. Actually, no, it's more like four or five years. Good Lord. I throw it on at a a movie night just on a whim and mm. it i'd never seen it before and it burned the house down it was it was great and this was the first lubitsch silent i had seen and it was pretty big for me because it opened me up to that whole period because i went what this feels like the work of a different filmmaker and now i think after going through these films you see the commonalities a lot more we'll get into that but this does not feel like the man who made the shop around the corner in so many ways in so many surface level ways under underneath that there's a lot but this feels like the work of just a like a, a manic maximalist trickster I also don't really remember this much artificiality or embracing the artificiality. Because you at some point, like during the film, you texted me. It's like, just try and figure out where this is taking place. And I, yeah. I, I kept thinking about that. And it's just impossible to pinpoint because all the sets are so, yeah, like I said, artificial. It's so designed mm-hmm. almost, which is something that I had seen. Uh, I don't want to be a man. Like there are definitely parts of that where you can see that he's experimenting with sets, but it's much more chaotic. Like all, all his frames are much more chaotic. Like there's mm-hmm. there's many people, like he's he's a big ensemble guy. And, and I mean, this one is a, it's a huge step towards just his kind of geographic ambiguity that he embraces not all the time, but quite often, like by all textural dramatic evidence, this film takes place in America. It's about an American, you know, he's the oyster King. And then you have kind of a, a deposed prince who clearly just, you know, was the prince of some country that probably no longer exists and is chilling in his apartment. But then you have scenes in which, you know, it's clearly Berlin. Uh, it's not, hmm. they're not trying to, they're not shooting on a, on a, on an UFA lot. They're shooting in just the streets of Berlin. Like you can completely see landmarks. Uh, I think there's one scene in Tiergarten. And so it's kind of this imaginary, and it's, the word I use a lot for this is Lubitschland, right? It's unplaceable, which is really cool. I mean, but the whole thing seems geared to be, you know, it's a satire of it's kind of American assembly line capitalism. Um, I should, pro- we should probably like say that it's a satire about a family of oyster impresarios. You know, you have the Oyster King played by Victor Jensen and his daughter played by Ossie Oswalda, the oyster titular oyster princess. They 
trying to find her a suitable husband who is a prince. And they find a real prince who is clearly a sham prince. Hijinks ensue. This film is, even by Lubitsch standards, not plot heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen it classified as a romantic comedy, which to me is really funny because it's this film could not be less concerned with the romance in the way that one usually thinks of when they think this is a romantic comedy. It's very situationally driven. Like, and the characters are inhabited by the actors and they, the actors give the characters texture. And, and, and that's where most of the, you know, hijinks come from. Like there's this part where uh, Prince Nuki's friend, Yosef, is, uh, is, is, ha- is having to wait for Aussie and to get ready. And the dad, like Mr. Quaker, the Oyster King, you know, falls asleep. And he's just kind of like walking around this tiny table in the middle. And he's just kind of playing around with the lines on the floor of this room. Well, so much of this film is in just taking these very mundane situations and that's and the thing. Yeah. Making yeah. them into these big, like comic set pieces. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just Julia's waiting around for Aussie to finish bathing. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Th- there's this grand intercutting sequence between her bathing, which is this massive, I mean, clear parody of like the American assembly line process. Um, I, I looked up the dates on this and I, I'm convinced this is a thing, even though I've read this nowhere, but uh, they basically like <laughs> clean her as if she was a Model T Ford uh, being built in a factory. Like everyone, it, there's so many servants and each of them has exactly one thing to do, right? There's one set of servants to like, yeah. you know, do like the yeah. specific type of massage on her back. The next one to yeah. do a different type of massage. But even even then, yeah, exactly. And then that creates this level of redundancy because like there's all these once that thing is done, all these other people are just like waiting around, you know, like they don't have any function beyond like prepping this one function they have. And that's intercut too with, with, you know, Yosef, this kind of old money. He's introduced as Prince Nuki's friend, but he seems more of like a manservant. Yeah. But he's this, you know, clearly old money guy who is completely at sea in this grand excess new money capitalist hell so you have this beautiful intercutting that i mean it's all very silly but there is rhetoric there i think ish and it's also (laughs) where i slowly started to realize especially when she's being undressed and there's a couple of maids around her who's doing that you know and then like Mm -hmm. the these screen doors uh just kind of reveal your you know model t a hundred other mates yeah, exactly. Like so many more people. Lubitsch's joke at this point, I feel like he he repeats this in the doll in certain ways where it's just about this, what was his like Aaron Verm multiplication of something very mundane? Mm-hmm. So Aaron Verm is, is an artist who he would have a car and then he would make the chassis i guess around the car he would make it as if it would be fat like it would the car would be really fat he would blow up mm-hmm. the car we, we would have a house and he would make it smaller and he would you know like his idea was usually just like so what if i take this normal thing and i would just blow it up or i would make it very small and that's kind of where lubitsch is at this point as well i think where he he tried to do this with that i don't want to be a man but he didn't really have control of his extras he, he didn't really know how to compose them in a way where they would become a for him a party scene was just a party scene right Mm -hmm. so it was just like okay just have party and then in the middle of it is a scene and then that of course creates chaos i mean the first party scene if i'm not mistaken that is a part of this retrospective has been the mary jail which it's this embassy party the choreography is 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 quite interesting mostly because it's this like very merry widow-ish succession 
of very esoteric fictional cultural events, customs mm. where like it'll cut from you know this ballroom dance to people ice skating around a giant snowman. <laughs> That's yeah. like the party. And then you have in I don't want to be a man this wonderful staging in depth, right? But it's it's not as elegant or overly fussy as in this film and then you have you know further scenes and like carmen has some wonderful crowd scenes where you have these militaristic marches and then yeah you have this where it's this just gorgeously choreographed almost surreal experience yeah it's 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 very controlled especially i'm immediately thinking of the long table where all these waiters are giving the plates and the Mm -hmm. only reason why it is so so wonderful to look at because it creates so much texture and depth to the whole thing is yeah like i said multiplication it's just mm-hmm. a lot of waiters you know like it's not just a few but it's a lot of them like there's definitely 50 walking around there he also loves his kind of flocks of men and women yeah it's not just like a suitor it's 20 suitors yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah it's the uh, uh in the doll where he's being chased by 20 or 40 women or something like that and just keeps mm-hmm. going and going and going and that creates comedy and that creates the exaggeration of the situation and like i said it's like the character is not really well defined beyond their like very base level uh, she's a spoiled you know rich kid and he's a tycoon basically but within that they have a lot of room to move actually because like aussie is not necessarily you know she does some things that are kind of annoying for instance and modern movies would play this up a lot more and they would a, a character like aussies would just be annoying but we still like want her to win and want her to find the man of her love love of her life and all that stuff so it's this weird thing where uh, like Lubitsch doesn't pigeonhole any of these characters into this single trait Uh, the trait is part of who they are and the trait is very you know much there but it's it's the situation that makes the whole thing around them I guess which I found very refreshing because yeah there's like I said there's movement you could you could have this character be annoying in one scene and then the next just be entirely lovable which is something that aussie is as my introduction to aussie she's wonderful what Mm -hmm. a wonderful person she is i i love her to bits she has certain ways of expressing herself that are so much fun like she's having so much fun in every scene and now i don't know much about aussie except for the fact that she died penniless at 49 uh which was very sad yeah i mean all i know about her later life is that she escaped nazi germany and settled in i believe prague one of many many people we're seeing in these films whose life was just absolutely destroyed by the tumult of the 30s or in, in the case of someone like emil yannings uh, uh they, they they rode that wave oh god they did oh emil yannings oh have you not seen the photo with him and goebbels oh no i haven't apparently yeah he's the he's the one who uh won an oscar and then, and within, you know, four years then, I guess, five years, uh, he was a Nazi. Mm, fun. I know not if it was a marriage of convenience, but it doesn't really matter. But yeah, no, um, I find Aussie is such an interesting uh, case in this of kind of a something that I think will hopefully come more and more into focus as we mm. go along this Lubitsch retrospective, which is the morality in these films is so fascinating because conventional morality, you know, conventional virtue is one thing, but mm. in, in Lubitsch's films, it's almost never a matter of your stature of birth. It's never a matter of, are you a virtuous giving person who follows X, Y, and Z requirements of classical virtue? No, it's how well do you pretend to be the thing you want to be? And two, basically how much of a free spirit are you? Are you successfully gregarious and entertaining? Therefore, that is a good. You know, Carmen from Carmen is by any metric, 
a villain. Uh, she is a yeah. femme fatale who drives her romantic interest to ruin. But as played by Paula Negri and depicted by Ernst Lubitsch, she is who we are kind of despite ourselves rooting for because she's about the only character in the movie who seems in control of her destiny and yeah. is has the confidence to try and get what she wants, right? She she fulfills the type of person that she clearly wants to be. Uh, that type of person is not a virtuous person, but we're carried along with her because of that. And the same thing with Aussie in this, right? She is this tantrum-throwing heiress. What's the name <laughs> I love the name of the nonprofit she runs, the Association of Millionaires Daughters for the Prevention of Dipsomania, which is alcoholism. And immediately <laughs> we're shown them raising a glass to their success, right? It's they're, they're all drinking wine. And it's 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 lovely. It actually reminds me, I feel like Arrested Development's entire thing is based on this. But that's the closest we we ever see to her like doing something that's not overtly selfish. And, and yet, because she accomplishes all this with such bombast and grace. She is therefore yeah. one of the few characters in the movie that we are we are rooting for. Yeah, especially in these earlier works that I've seen, Lubitsch feels very like an anarchist almost of these. And of course, like we're at the beginning of cinema still. Like, you know, cinema is at this point, what, 20 years old, 30 years old, something like that. So oh, I thought you meant now. I'm like, oh, yeah, cinema started with Jaws, right? Yes, Jaws. <laughs> so exactly. So like, and now it's clicked into place into this, like, okay, films have to look this certain way. And I don't know if it was like that way back in the day. But for him, there's something chaotic. For the longest time, especially as an experimental filmmaker, I've always looked for a certain kind of chaos and a certain kind of uh, yeah anarchy in films. And it's hard to find because usually things are, conform themselves to the rules and then kind of like, you know, deviate from it a little bit. But I feel that in this way, of course, Lubitsch doesn't have much to conform to because it's still, you know, all clicking into place. There's not even sound yet. So there's a lot, lot more room for experimentation. That's where you definitely see it, where there's this one joke in the beginning of the film where she's smashing up her room because she's mad because what is it? The shoe polish the king's daughter or something has married a, I don't know, someone of lower stature than a prince. So mm -hmm. Aussie's dad comes in and says, like, you know what? I'll buy you a prince. And she's been, you know, thrashing the house. That is one of the greatest room thrashing moments. Like, right? She she's that room so much so fun much. with it. And that's the thing as well. It's like you, you're not worried about anything in that point. Like usually, you know, when when you see a room thrashing, you're like worried or it's funny or something like that. But she just makes it look so. Is jubilance a word? I don't know. It's it's very jubilant. There's the great punchline, right? Where uh, exactly. the Oyster that's... King comes in and says, "Why are you throwing newspapers at me?" Because I broke all the vases, right? I ran out of vases. <laughs> yeah, that one. That one's so good. And then later on, like eventually, that dad's like, you know, I'll buy you a prince. And then he walks away, and she's like, I'm so happy I could smash the whole house to pieces. Yes. And then she's like, smashes a chair <laughs> onto a table. <laughs> and but it looks so much. It looks like so much fun. It it's all brought with this idea of just enjoying the smashing of the house and that being an expression of you know a multitude of emotions basically at this point because she's yeah she was mad she smashed the house now she's happy she wants to smash the house and it's used for a comedy and also like yeah the dad is like very unimpressed and he kind of weaves that in 
like you come back to that idea of the dad being very uh, or or the oyster king being very unimpressed by everything except for apparently his daughter getting laid. That's that's a big thing we should talk, we should we should <laughs> talk about this because this I think this is the first instance of this in the Lubitsch film and he's going to continue to do oh. this repetition of a refrain a mm. one line of dialogue that he just uses over and over, right? It's the Schultz. It's the, so they call me concentration camp Earhart. Yeah, but it's also, it's also that idea. And I don't know, who, I think you know which comedian this was, but there was this comedian who says like, my favorite joke is the one where I can say the same thing twice and it means something completely different. But in this, like he uses that refrain basically, uh, which I think is, is a very nice way of putting it. Uh, he uses that refrain over and over and over again in different situations where, you know, that builds his character, but that also builds towards this joke. And then in the end, yeah, the, there's this really weird moment where he says that he's really impressed for whatever reason. Well, he says, no, that impresses me after watching his uh, yeah. his daughter and her uh, fiance clearly about to produce him an heir. The character of the Oyster King, Victory Danson in this, is fascinating to me because the film is a very gentle satire. We never, yeah. he's a character who kind of represents the villainy of American capitalism and the hypocrisy. I mean, there's this undertone of American race relations in the film where he has his team of black servants and and the film is i think at that point referring to certain social things in america that should be all too obvious and and so there's this undercurrent of just what's the word i'm grotesque class and racial inequality in this and yet we are not really ever asked to judge this character he's just this comical figure and I, i wonder i wonder what to think of that he's he's a he's a he's a product of I don't know what exactly, but he's a product of of a thing and everyone around him is a product of that as well. That's just, you know, like he seems the kind of guy who like hired these four guys. It's just like, yeah, but that's what you do, right? Like, mm-hmm. like with no sense of uh, self-awareness or anything like that, where it's just like, yeah, that's, that's what you do. And it's such a weird, and that's what I mean with the anarchy. Like even his social commentary is even so played in such a weird register he doesn't askew it. Like he really puts it in your face. Like, yeah, this is a situation you're looking at, but then he doesn't really follow up on it. And it's not a lack of follow through, but it's just kind of, he just lets it sit there and be part of the texture of the whole thing so that it can all compound to this single idea that you might have about the film or whatever. And I think that is a very admirable way of going about, yeah, social satire mm-hmm. instead of, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm wagging my finger and this is a audio medium. So, you know, you can't see that, but like, you know, preaching, like he's not preaching. It never feels like he's vilifying, you know, the oyster king who's so easy to vilify. And yet he doesn't do it. And he just revels in the situation. It's like, this is just the situation, how it is. And we are going to watch it unfold. Have fun. He refuses to ever write anyone off as a human. <laughs> I mean, this weirdness extends to the what we can call the romantic comedy story, because you have two co-leads on paper who mm. do not meet until, but what, real four of this four reeler <laughs> yeah. at yeah, the Dipsomania Society? You know, he's Harry is dragged in as this drunkard. And then it's this l- bizarre love at first sight between someone who's blackout drunk and Aussie, who is questionably sane. I'm sorry, not not even not even Aussie, just Aussie, but like the entire committee yes of her yeah like everyone's immediately in love with this guy everyone's just like wow who's this hot guy walking in they decide to compete for him 
Yeah, by, by boxing. boxing in a line. Yeah, <laughs> like this actually not boxing, happens in this movie. Not boxing one this by one. This is a one. lovely movie. Everyone watch it. Um, <laughs> it's a great movie. It's not even boxing like there's a ring and then everyone boxes. No, no, no. It's a it's, it's a, a line. line. It's a line. They're all standing in line and they uh, bump fists and then they box each other until the last man, women standing. It is uh yeah wonderful. Meanwhile, this guy's just like gets punched in the face as well. It's like they even punch him while they are fighting for him mm-hmm. because he walks in between. And then he stands on a on a small, uh, which I thought was very funny. It's like he's already been punched in the face. He went through the whole line of, of ladies boxing. And then he stands on this little podium and just like shouts at them, fight, fight, while they have been fighting for quite a while at this point. The least uh. ridiculous thing in this movie is that Aussie manages to beat every single one of them. <laughs> you completely believe that this person would have enough drive to do that. For sure. And all the all the all the bow ties on the on the ground as well. It was such a nice touch. Uh, of him picking one up and just checking it out. And yeah, yeah, that's so wonderful. One of my notes was Harry Leadkey perfectly cast as a romantic lead who is gone for half the movie. <laughs> and that was written right after I saw Carmen. So I wrote that in a bout of uncharitability, but I think he's truly very good in this. He's clearly, I think, better at playing a goofy romantic drunkard than Sergeant Jose in otherwise fairly serious Carmen. I love that um, at no point do we get the sense that he has his wits about him enough to actually properly fall in love? I also love when he's like, uh, like his mates take him out. I just wanted to highlight that real quick. Uh, his mates take him out for a stroll, which is never announced more than a stroll, but they've been heavily drinking. And then they walk in this one beautiful static shot. And there's all these like benches on the side of the road. The camera's in the middle of the road and they all walk down that road and one by one, someone like ends up on a couch because they're swaying so much. It's a lovely shot. Or like bench, sorry, a bench, because they're swaying so much. It's such a lovely composition that just changes over time in the most wonderful way. Wonderful is just like, that's the adjective I'm using. We haven't even talked about the Foxtrot epidemic. <laughs> yes. So much of this feels like things that Lubitsch would subtly incorporate in his later films, like The Merry Widow, especially, and his musicals, and mm. in ways that are just much lighter of touch. Everything in this film is big and lovely and beautifully choreographed but this film feels so iconoclastic in his career in that it almost feels like a road that he almost went down but didn't Mm. it's big broad physical comedy he never really returned to this um he iterated on it in the doll and wildcat which are also pretty big Mm. comedies but he found the nuance in it and found ways to kind of tweak it and make it a little more alien like the doll is in this beautifully unreal literal dollhouse of a world the only thing that i thought of while watching the doll was uh that it looked like the uh romer movie oh percival yeah percival exactly yeah uh, it looks very much like percival it looks very much like romer was aware of <laughs> the doll and just was like yeah something like this but he was also going by you know medieval paintings and and but it, it's the only other film i've ever seen that went this hard in i think you mentioned it on letterbox you said it's the first deliberately lo-fi movie the fact that the horses are guys in horse suits <laughs> <laughs> and they have to pull the carriage which is so ridiculously funny as a joke uh and also because like one of the like their tail falls off and all these things with the set because everything is made sorry for going on to the doll but like oh, i just really mean... want to quickly talk about it but like yeah. everything in that set goes wrong like there are so many things that should land in a certain way and lubitsch just leaves it in the movie 
there's multiple things like that from the beginning on when when he puts up the background of the of the dollhouse when Ernst Lubitsch himself like puts up the whole dollhouse thing from a little suitcase and then you know he puts that he puts the background on and the background almost falls over and he just like has to put it up again and you know clicks it into place like this constantly goes wrong in that film and somehow he just like it becomes part of the yeah, part of the diegesis of the film, and it kind of works. I'm, I'm totally stealing my material from the doll episode, but the best comparison I can make to the doll is uh, the video game Yoshi's Island, uh, oh. Super Mario World 2, where both yes. films, sorry, not both films, both <coughs> works of art are expertly crafted to look like they were designed by children. Yes, exactly. And there's something about that that's that works really well. And I feel like like the Oyster Princess has that quality as well. It's less lo-fi, it's less, you know, outspoken in that. I do feel that the doll has a clear source in the Oyster Princess in certain ways. And mm-hmm. I do agree with you. Like the comedy is so broad and very physical. I'm now looking at the scene with the conductor. Oh my gosh, yes. Who is amazing. The band master. The greatest percussion instrument in history, which is slapping a man's face. I forgot about him. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And there's so many jokes like that where it just cuts away and just takes time for a second to just like tell these little visual jokes here and there. And just like sometimes he just even like all he does is cut away to a face because the face is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's all he does. And then the whole it, it all adds to this. I don't know. I was constantly just smiling and laughing throughout this whole section. The massive leap forward that you can see in just like the two years since the Mary Jail is absolutely stunning to me. You've gone from, you know, this rhythm of the Mary Jail where yeah. you cut to a comic close up and it holds for like three times as long as you would expect. And yeah. you've gotten basically everything you're going to get out of the shot in the first few seconds. And then it just continues. This is not to say that, you know, a 1917 silent film is less than, but fairly simplistic staging that often feels like, oh, this is theatrical staging as filmed mm. by a camera taking place in the audience. You know, the yeah. usual thing we say. This is so much more diverse and uh, sophisticated in its rhythms in the way the scene construction is, is is assembled like you have shots like the that wonderful set of panning shots that that rhyme where you have uh, harry leadkey asks his friend for money and the slow pan across their faces and then the counterpoint pan from below that goes left as, as we follow the money the pan is the gag you know film is so young still so they're still kind of figuring out like what's this whole editing thing the editing this way hadn't been invented like also is very young at this time He's still following very few of like the the things we associate with classical yeah. continuity. Characters will yeah. like exit frame right, enter frame left. Like it's it's good luck mapping the 180 <laughs> rule on this. I mean, yeah. like, you know, continuity of um, even like things like object permanence, the continuity of things outside the screen isn't really a concern. Characters kind of jump around the space in whatever suits the comedic moment. And again, this is not a bad thing. It's just this is, feels like a road not traveled. Example of this is the the band playing the music at the party. And mm-hmm. yeah, we cut away to the guy with the saw. And then we got away to, at some point, we cut away to the guy slapping another guy in the face. But like, where are they in the band? Like, we don't see them in there, in the wide shot. They're not part of the wide shot. He cuts because that is a joke that he wanted to tell. But mm-hmm. it has no continuity with any of the, you know, other moments with, with the wide shot of the whole band where we can see, so, oh, clearly I can see the saw guy. Clearly I can see the other guy. And then there's also other parts where geographically it doesn't make any sense whatsoever but he just made it happen in a way because it worked better for you know the visual gag or the timing or something like that and that's where 
I keep I keep going back to the anarchy, but like that's where I feel that there is a certain kind of anarchy going on as well. And of course, like halfway in the weird rounded edges, he starts using far more mats in this movie. Yeah, right? like he does this split yeah. screen of like dancing feet on like so there there are three frames on top of each other, all mm-hmm. with rounded edges for some reason because it looks cool. <laughs> exactly like i'm definitely going to use this and then yeah we have like two people dancing and then we have like a lot of people dancing so i think these are the layers of the of the castle or the building that they're in uh the only joke is that they're the the, the house is really big but the house doesn't really feel that big or let that labyrinthian until they pull out the map and then suddenly the house is like very labyrinthian which i think is very funny as well the map of the house gets me where it's yeah. if you look at it it's clearly a map of a city <laughs> It's so good. I, I just want to uh, highlight as well the newspaper gag. Aussie is waiting for her her husband. She has just recently said, "Hey, I want a husband," and the dad's like, "Yeah, I'll buy you a print." And then she's sitting next to her dad, and the dad's just reading a newspaper. She's telling her dad, "It's been an hour and a half, and I still don't have a husband," which I think is a funny joke by itself. And then she rips the newspaper out of his hands, and without a beat, he takes out another newspaper from one of his pockets and unfolds it and starts reading again. And this happens like three, four times in a row. <laughs> I just, that's what I mean. It's like, there are very few silent movies of which the man, there are very few movies from the two thousands that still feel funny because like some have aged really poorly or the timing doesn't work or something like that. And this, I was laughing out loud at this thing from, you know, 1919 which on my watch is a long time ago. It's such a testament to what he was able to achieve there and what a big jump he made between these films that he's made before and suddenly this thing where suddenly somehow it all clicked. The scene where finally Harry and Aussie are like, if only we weren't married to other people and they're crying. And the editing rhythms in that scene are so fascinating to me because every piece of coverage from that scene is shot from the exact same camera position, exact same. So how does Lubitsch cut from one shot to the other? He uses mats to frame out the other person. So you have that shot of Harry where he's in a vertical oval mat. And so you get Mm -hmm. these lovely cuts where you have this two shot of Harry crying and then it cuts to a single of him that's wider. Aussie should be there, but she's not. And yet, because of that discontinuity and the slight change in posture and the fact that it's, you know, clearly from a different moment, it's not continuous. I don't know why it makes it funnier, but it does. Yeah, it's it, I think it's funnier because uh, let's explain the joke. That'll make it better. It's anarchic. Uh, <laughs> yay. OK, end of the episode. Bye. So when he starts crying and starts like <laughs> trying his tears with her panties. <laughs> exactly. It's the same thing as Aussie being called Aussie in this movie. It doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't work. Because why does her character have the same name as her real life person? But like, it just is. So leave me alone. <laughs> and that's the whole anarchy thing, I guess. Like he, he's just doing this shit because he thinks in that moment that was the, like they probably did a couple of takes on this and he just thought this take was really good and he couldn't really figure out a way to put it in. So he's like, oh, fuck it. I'll put a mat around it and we'll just like highlight it and then we'll just continue. That's it. And that that whole playfulness just drips out of this movie. Yeah, you just want to be part of this world and you just want to hang out with these people or at least with Ernst because I think the making of this film must have been so much fun. Most of his films in this period I've seen at some point or another called the transitional work. Usually that implies that it's not quite thing A, it's not quite thing B, so therefore it's uh, lesser. For me, what's most fascinating about this film like The Oyster Princess, aside from the fact that it's hilarious, it's a laugh riot, is 
that you get to see like a great artist like Ernst go down so many of these alleys that would not be subsumed into like the mainstream aesthetic, right? You get these mats, Mm -hmm. you get these jagged cuts, you get these very ambitious crowd choreography that is kind of unlike anything he would do before or since. You get to see him truly experiment. He's still in the process of creating the aesthetic he would be famous for. We're still in the 19 teens, right? We're at the point at which, you know, most film studies classes don't even address <laughs> or most, I would say, film form classes, you know, anything that deals with production, right? You know, we're still at the place when they're like, yeah, you know, they were still figuring it out in big air quotes. Exactly. He's, he's just throwing shit at the wall, see what sticks. Don't forget, like, this is his, he's five years in and he's made like 20 films at this point. I, I could go through the list of lost films and there's many, there's many more films have been made in this period than yeah. survived, which is... A tragedy, but also it's amazing that these eight have survived so far. This is some of the most exciting stuff you can imagine, right? He was still inventing mm. the rules. The idea that this is a transitional work kind of presupposes that the aesthetic rule book, you know, the aesthetic mm-hmm. singularity that we all are familiar with presupposes that as some kind of predestined endpoint. It says, hey, everything was leading to this when things started working. All cinema leads to Marvel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <exactly. laughs> You know, kind of yeah. theory of the case, yeah. right? Or, you know, and again, you can you can point at any, like I've seen this argued, you know, Citizen Kane is probably the one that's brought it most, right? Citizen Kane brought everything together and yeah. we've been hunky-dory since then, right? Um, I've seen that with Jaws. There was a famous mm. internet forums of the 2000s blog post saying that cinema had only really matured with the creation of mm. the Steven Spielberg mm. movie Jaws. And so there, there's all, all these attempts to try and find that point at which like this is when cinema became cinema. I find that a deeply unhealthy way of, of viewing movies. I know. I remember having this conversation once with a random gentleman who was sitting next to me during the International Film Festival at Rotterdam. We just had watched a, a long night of very, very experimental films entirely made out of uh, celluloid and radishes, you know, that type of stuff where there was a, like very heavy drone sound and like a lot of like things stuck to celluloid and that scanned in again, and whatever. And this gentleman was quite old, like probably in his 80s, 70s, 80s. And he was this very taken aback by the fact that so many younger people for him young people had gone to celluloid again and uh, i kind of like thought about that and i and i told him it's like i think everyone's kind of busy with like let's say we now are at an end point you know in film we now found our ourselves at a point where uh, a conclusion right we went down so many paths Somehow we ended up here. And a lot of people are very unhappy with where we ended up, what you were just saying, you know, like the the end result is Marvel, blah, blah. That doesn't really work. But I, I do think that if you think in a very like linear progression of time, which, you know, time is, and there were all these open paths, like the Oyster Princess is, it is good to then go back, not for nostalgia reasons, because that's the mistake that most people make, but you go back to unearth something uh, some technique, some idea, whatever, and then try to move from there in a different direction than than what we're currently doing, right? So, and there have definitely been movies that, can, like I just mentioned, Romero's movie, Percival, which is one of those like digressing paths kind of movie where, yeah, if if that would have been a little bit bigger. Yeah, what if cinema was a pre-Bernaleski painting? <laughs> exactly. No, but it's also like, can you imagine if that was bigger and then Romare was just like, that's going to be my whole career and we would have just had that? What would have that done to like someone, for instance, Wes Anderson, which, you know, is very much that artificial, very controlled chaos kind of guy 
who I think is also a big fan of Lubitsch. It was, I think, specifically The Merry Widow and To Be or Not To Be were very big influence on... The uh, Grand Budapest. I'm so curious... I would love to know if the Wildcat was <laughs> was an influence because that is like <laughs> among that. Like a, if, if Wes Anderson was around the twenties, that's the movie you, he would have made. And of course, like because he's the only guy doing that right now, like he's he's he somehow went to that sideway path and just kind of stuck with it. And he's been, you know, people have had a lot of opinions about that. I, for one, really enjoy it. Bless him for it. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, just let him like walk down that path to the beat of his own drum and let him just go and let's see where it ends up. I don't give a shit if it's good or bad. I just want to see where it ends up, you know, mm. uh, and with ending up meaning what will he be his last movie? And, you know, how can we take it further from there? You know, one thing I've struggled with is in this first season is that if I'm being totally honest, the majority of the films in this season, I don't think are fully successful in their own terms. <laughs> but no. it's it's very tempting to just to, to harp on that and to treat this almost like as a series of reviews hey this movie works it's great you should watch it versus eh, this movie you don't skip my from berlin and, and I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to do my best to avoid that because I, I think that there's so much value in seeing one the development of an artist and two i don't think there's anything inherently lesser about watching films where the specific techniques being used did not catch on or otherwise are not fully functional in and of themselves, that dysfunction is interesting and valuable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, John McTiernan's best movie is Rollerball. So there we go. <laughs> oh, uh, <boy>. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> You're going to get me killed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> best Star Wars is Attack of the Clones. But yeah, like I said, it's like it's so valuable to go back to these type of films and, you know, unearth them and see like, OK, is, is there anything? Is there any idea? Is there any, you know, aesthetic that I can lift from this and build on top of? Not out of you know respect for the medium or you know whatever it is that we you know or like homage you know all those things like i don't give a shit about that i give a shit about hey what if what if we would make x film but then in in the style of this and see how that would work what would the chemical reaction be and how would that you know and and often it doesn't but who cares about if a thing works just try it out that is of course part of anarchy it's process driven and mm. not necessarily result driven i'm currently researching a movie entirely about that so i can't talk about anything else but you know process driven stuff so i'm sorry for everyone who has been hanging out with me for the past two weeks and having to listen to this episode but i really like that about the films that i've watched of lubitsch and specifically this one where yeah sure you can keep saying that things are untransitional you know but like transition is something that is perpetual so transition is the most interesting part exactly exactly because it's neither that or that so it's more like a question mark and to me a question mark is more interesting than an answer because it has the uh, benefit of endless possibilities and if the oyster princess does one thing it is to explore the possibilities of this very 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 young medium i've seen films around the same time who have already kind of settled down for a certain kind of grammar I once had a conversation with a friend who, uh, who who said, like, I never get when people say that a movie is too ambitious because, like, a movie should be inherently too ambitious and just kind of fail to re reach the ambition because it's so interesting to see where they ended up and where they couldn't take it. And that's definitely something that you see here because, yeah, he, he's figuring it out. 
you could also make the argument that there's a another probably much more likely alternate reality where he makes historical epics forever because that's what he made his name on first film in season two folks is madame dewberry which is a grand historical epic and there's a lot of those coming up and so <laughs> he could have been uh, he could have been the germany's answer to demille or whatever he, he found a different path anyway f- four out of five stars <laughs> would recommend <laughs> yeah I, I, I it's a four bagger it's a four bagger I've been I've been maintaining a letterbox list just for my own amusement, a ranking of Lubitsch films. And at this point, I it's such a nonlinear enterprise that there's no it, point. It's become it like I've had the same with Romare. I've had the same with Godard. It becomes meaningless once you hit the ten movie mark, where it's just like okay, so how like where where do I his 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 autobiography in December is uh, one of his best movies. Uh, and very interesting, but do I really want to put put it above Le Mepris? You know, like, is it really, or Contempt? Is it really better than that? And then it just becomes bullshit. On my list, I have the I have the doll between Design for Living and Angel, which is kind of like putting a like a banana between two cinder blocks, or, you know, <laughs> two things that just are not the same category at all, right? It's everything's so abstract now. You already set it up a little bit, but I, I kinda, I'm kind of curious now, so I want to, I know this is the uh, season uh, finale. Hooray! Yeah, where, where are you now at? in your project because like i've seen you lose your shit in a berlin museum i still have a picture of it making a selfie with the original what would lubitsch do banner and uh what billy Billy wilders Wilders. yeah the one that saw bass banner of like exactly i've never seen anyone as enthusiastic as you (laughs) running through that museum looking for that you didn't know that it was there so it suddenly you know came came upon it it was like (gasps) gasp so now that you've done i'm guessing at this point most of the first season yeah where are you at in terms of the show, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, right. I'm going to be traveling to New York to record in person with some folks. I'm more confident in my ability to finish this than I was after like a couple episodes. The, the, the toughest part for me was after recording just two episodes because I was like, oh my gosh, mm. I lost. It had been over a year since I had podcasted. So I was like, oh, I've, I've lost it. I've, yeah. uh, I don't have the rhythm anymore. It, this first season is going to be terrible, but uh, it's just been a bunch of fun conversations. So I'm dreading editing it. I used to have a podcast called The Screenplay so far. It might be offline by the time this this airs. Uh, so I'm sorry for everyone who wanted to listen to that. I quit podcasting because of the editing. <laughs> That's all. So I feel I feel it. But like the other the other question or the other thing I'm curious about is that how have these conversations shaped your relationship with Ernst? I don't think the conversations have impacted my relationship so much as this kind of just sustained experience of just letting myself be fully obsessed with like a director Mm. the kind of exercise of trying to actually go you know what i'm gonna do my best to fully understand this subject yeah (laughs) because i'm a real um dilettante in my opinion i'll like be just researching random color science stuff in the morning then in the afternoon i'll just find some weird film history curio to get obsessed with for a couple hours then i'll move on and Mm -hmm. this has given me an excuse to just not feel like I am neglecting other things by just diving really deep into this. So that to me has been the most rewarding part. Just I'm actually focused on one thing that doesn't happen very often with me. I mean, there's also so much of it. So you have you have some ways to go. I am curious to see if I mean those of you listening to this, thank you. But I am curious to see if anyone is gonna is gonna listen to these first three seasons because we are starting with the least known, least widely beloved part of his career. I've not come across anyone whose first Lubitsch that they made them fall in love with him was like the Mary Jail. Maybe maybe you should release the episodes instead of like what you've been doing right now chronologically. Maybe you should release them in order of uh, letterboxed popularity. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's see what the let's see what well uh, i have uh, it right uh, in front of me right now okay what's the highest and what's the lowest uh, so guess the highest trouble in paradise no that's number three or to be or not to be it's one it, of the, oh it, really exactly so one is to be or not to be then it's trouble in paradise and three what's two two has to be shop around the corner then right it's shop uh then four is ninochka this is our twisted box office game exactly <laughs> It's uh, the hard part is going to be the bottom five because I would be very sure that the bottom five is like there's probably like 20 films that do not exist, films that are lost. Shit like Blind Cow, The New <laughs> Nose, The Last Suit. Yeah, those all sound like uh, 1916, 1915. Doesn't even have those uh, are fully lost posters. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But yeah, you should you should release them in order of uh, popularity so that you can uh, get all that great Squarespace. And then just the, the last two seasons of the podcast, which is the lowest ratings in Apple history. <laughs> exactly. No, you might as well rip the bandaid off. And I mean, if anything, now I get to, you know, watch the uh, the Austin Princess and, and I've never <laughs> seen that. And now I can tell you that I've seen it. And yeah, great movie. The Poopa as well. The, the, and, and even even like the other one that I watched, what is it? I don't want to be a man. What a weird movie that is. Those are about the only two films this season that I would like fully recommend to an average person of like, what's a what's a what's a great film from Berlin in the 19-teens? Well, these two are great and the rest are interesting. Pretty OK. <laughs> we've had we've we've had wonderful times in Berlin and outside of Berlin in Zoom as well. Yeah, I should have. We should. I should have led with that. That we went through the Deutsche Kinematek. We saw all the Ernst Lubitsch, the three Ernst Lubitsch things in there, mm. along with the three hundred thousand Marlene Dietrich things in there. <laughs> her <laughs> luggage is in that museum. That was great. Yeah. Love to see her luggage in there in a weirdly nautical, uh, nautically styled museum. I think the funniest thing was that we went through the whole thing. We got to World War II, and of course, you know, something happened there uh, in Germany. And uh, they had they had a bunch of stuff like they didn't like just, you know, they didn't fully jump over it, but they had like two rooms dedicated to it. And then we turned a corner and it went really quickly for some reason. And you joked, oh, what's next? Rainer Renner Fassbinder. And yes, the next room is, is <laughs> Rainer Renner Fassbinder. <laughs> Who yeah, made and they really it's, it's, it's interesting. It's so weighted towards pre-war cinema that that museum. Two thirds of it is is, yeah. is Weimar stuff, yeah. And then it's it becomes World War Two, and then suddenly it's like, oh, here's modern sim. He's Vim Vendors. Here's, here's, every, here's like a little here's... shelf for uh, Vim Vendors and Herzog. <laughs> they have the Herzog shelf. Remember? Yeah, but they did have Straub as well, which I uh, Straub and Hillier, yeah. uh, which was uh, pretty great. So uh, like, yeah, the breadth of it was uh, well enough. But it, it it's such an interesting museum. Go there if you're ever in Berlin. Just go there to have some fun and look at Marlene Dietrich's uh, uh, suitcases. On, on that note, let's let's yeah. do a little outro here. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Brom. That was a fantastic 87 minute conversation, which will <laughs> surely be shorter. Is there anywhere that people online can find your work, such as your films? Uh, I have a few films on my website. Everything basically, I go by my own name, uh, which my uh, much younger brother and sister have told me is a bad idea for doxing reasons. So <laughs> there you go. But yeah, it's just my own name, Bram Reuter, or Bram Reuter, as everyone says it. Yeah, some movies are online, some other movies aren't. If you sent me a nice DM, I might send it to you if I like you enough. I'm currently working on a new film for which I've just recently received some funding. Uh, and I'm very excited to work on that for the next, I said six months, but talk to me again in a year and a half. Maybe it's done. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening to season one of this podcast. I'm assuming if you've gotten this far, you've probably listened to a couple others. So thanks so much. I'm going to hit the stop recording button.
Before we continue, some thanks are due to everyone who helped make this season happen. First, all of our guests, Lauren Faulkner-Rossi, Will Ross, Dara Jaffe, Matt Severson, Peter Labuza, Tim Brayton, Jose Arroyo, Fran Hoffner, and Bram Reiter. Everyone who provided invaluable content, helped find guests, or otherwise graciously lent their valuable counsel and support. Anya Shitak-Scott, Dave Kerr, David Cairns, Kristen Thompson, Paul Cuff, Lucy Marzola, Stefan Droisler, the MoMA, all of our soon-to-be-announced future guests, and too many others to list here. And, of course, to you listening to our show right now, thank you for surviving the most comically esoteric season of film podcasts imaginable. After a brief hiatus, we'll be back in March to discuss the second half of Ernst Lubitsch's career in Berlin. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for the links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 